name is Bob Hurt, and welcome to the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree podcast. For this episode, we will be speaking with my friend George Case III. George is a native of Trenton, New Jersey. He is also a friend of both Al Downing and Al Clark, aside from being the son of George Case Jr., who played for the Senators and the Indians. The elder Case was a stolen base king for six seasons. His son was also quite the player, playing for Rutgers University. George is also a former executive director of Sabre. So sit back, get yourself a drink, and enjoy this baseball conversation. Welcome to our show, George. Thank you very much, Bob. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so... uh I mean, I know you're you're filled with loads of uh, memories of of baseball. What what are some of your earliest memories of the game of baseball? Well, Bob, uh, to be very honest with you, I've told people that I really, literally, grew up in baseball. Um, I was born in 1940. Uh, my dad was playing for Washington at the time, and my mother told me that I was about six months old. And she took me to a ball game at Griffith Stadium, and I fell asleep in her arms. So, <laughs> and I've been around the game my entire life. So I, I literally grew up in it uh, from probably no no earlier than six months. But I have to think six months, and obviously I didn't didn't remember what went on, but my mother certainly did. And then she always had a laugh because about four or five years later, when I was a little bit older. I went to a ball game with her, and somebody was giving my dad a hard time, a fan in the stands that was seated not too far from where we were. And my mother said that I stood up and told that man that he should not say those bad things about my daddy. <laughs> and, so, and so my mother said that the man sheepishly sat down and didn't say a word ever since. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's what sons are supposed to do, right, George? father and here's somebody you know giving him a hard time i mean i wasn't going to stand for that he was my daddy yeah no i i don't blame you i would do the same thing uh you know well my father wasn't a baseball player but i would do the same thing Um, well yeah you know bob it's one thing when you're you know when you're a fan and fans boo and they can do whatever they want but you know they don't sometimes don't realize that there might be a a child or a wife or something of one of the ball players, and and they certainly you know don't need to hear all that stuff. Right, exactly. I totally agree with you. Um, my second, I guess, to start off, was it was it your father who taught you how to play the game, or how did you uh, first learn how to play the game of baseball? Well, I think I think baseball for some reason it just came very natural to me. Um, I've told people in the past that it might have been too easy because I. I could play just about any position. I knew the game, and maybe it was because I just being around my dad and hearing the stories, and we'd go out in the backyard and have a catch, and he'd show me some things. But it just was a, a sort of a game that I grew up with, and I knew how to play. I think the first time I took the field was in Little League in a formal setting. I had a uniform, and my, my dad laughed because he said I was so excited to put a uniform on just like his, yeah. I fell asleep in the uniform. So 
<laughs> you know, that's that's the impact of baseball. And I, I guess, you know, when you when you think about it, the ball players that came over were personal friends of my dad. I met him. I went to a lot of dinners and I went to ball games and I just exposed to it. And the fact that I could actually play uh, was certainly an added an added bonus because the game did come very easy. And the coach would say to me, he said, well, I need you to pitch today. I said, okay, or I need you to play first base. So every time I took went to a ball game, when I, beginning when I was 11 years old, I took two gloves with me because I wasn't sure whether I was going to pitch or play first base or play the outfield. So, now, were you were you a righty or a lefty? Things, Bob, where it came, it came so easy that you know, I, maybe I should have worked harder at it, but I knew how to hit. I knew how to field. I was I was fast. Um, and and game was not a mystery to me. I mean, I just knew how to play, and I think maybe it was just being exposed to it uh, by my dad at a very early age is what really you know was a, was an added bonus for me uh, when it came to baseball and the fact that I could actually play the game. Yeah. Now, were you were you a righty or a lefty, or did you? you... Uh, I was right-handed. Okay. My dad was was right-handed. Okay. And and we used to laugh because I was bigger and I had more power. Okay. But he used to say to me, he said, "Yeah, you are. You're bigger and stronger." But he said, "How about we go out and, and have a race?" <laughs> so I used to laugh. I said, "Dad, you're the fastest in the world at, at baseball," and he said, I, "I can hit the ball further than you, but no way I could I could outrun you. It just yeah. wasn't going to happen. I could run." but never nearly as fast as he was. Oh, yeah. He was, a, from everything that I've read, I mean, he was amazingly fast. I mean, of course... Yeah, he was. And I, th I think Bobby was natural speed. His, his father, my grandfather, who died a year before I was born, apparently had been a sprinter himself in the 18, late 1880s. And I think my dad inherited his speed, and he just loved baseball. He, he never ran track. He just had, you know, a God-given gift of uh, speed. And when I started playing, people used to compare me and say, well, you know, you, you probably are going to be fast, too. I said, well, I I'm fast, but I'm not as fast as my father. I'm probably bigger and stronger because he wasn't a home run hitter. He only had 21 career home runs. But, you know, I, I was a low ball hitter. He was a low ball hitter. He was a pull hitter. I was a pull hitter. So I, I think his certainly had an influence and genetically I think that's probably where it came from because of the fact that you know he was right-handed and, and when he was a kid himself he used to tell me that he pitched and he was uh, you know one of those guys that he said one time he struck out he struck out five guys in one inning the three okay. obviously went down on strikes but the other two, he struck out when the catcher missed the ball, dropped the ball, and the gut runner was to get to first base. So here he is in one inning. He strikes out five guys. Wow. Wow. Because, so. uh, you know, some things have to happen too, right? I mean, there has to be – well, first base has to be unoccupied. Wow. Well, yeah, that was it. You know, that's why, you know, the – the runners could run when you when you strike out and the catcher misses the ball or whatever. You know they can run to first and either the catcher you know makes a wild throw or there isn't able to get the ball. So 
that counts as a strikeout, but the guy is awarded first base. So right. That happened, you know, I say that happened where he struck out three guys, and the two other guys he struck out got to first base, and, uh, you know, that was not considered an out. So that was five five potential strikeouts in one inning. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm looking at baseball reference. I have it open in front of me, and I, I see your dad led the um, – the American League and stolen bases, what, six times? But it, the one year he played for Cleveland, he, he led the league in stolen bases. Right. What he did, Bobby, he led the major leagues from 39 to 43, both leagues. He was the okay. you know, stolen base king of baseball in that five-year stretch. Then in 44 and 45, he came in second to Snuffy Sternweiss. My dad had been hurt. Uh, quite a bit in those two years. Then he was traded to Cleveland, and he was still hurt, but he he was able to lead the league with 28 stolen bases, which for him was a low number. Right. Um, but it was one that, you know, his, his reputation was built on speed, and Lou Pedro was the manager of the Indians, you know, had my dad leading off, and, and it, it worked out, but the fact is that he was the only season that he did not play in Washington. Uh, he was with uh, Cleveland just that one year in 46. And he only played in uh, 118 games that year, too, when he had all those stolen bases. Yeah, I think that was part of a, you know being hurt. Uh, right. Uh, that's why, you know, my dad had a lot of muscle pulls. He, matter of fact, he was 4F during World War II because he had a separated shoulder. Okay. He was allowed to keep playing baseball, but he was not uh, eligible to be called up to the service because of his uh, physical ailment, which was a separated shoulder. Yeah. Now, I mean, you were only, I guess, six years old that year. Did you do you remember anything from from those games, or was there any? I remember, Bob, I remember a little bit. A little you bit. Know, I, I do recall some things, and my dad had a, a my little autograph book, and he took it. And introduced me to some of the players, you know, Bob Lemon and, right. and Bob Feller and, and, uh, you know, Lou Boudreau and those fellows. And I met Bill Beck. So, I mean, I, I met a lot of very, very fine baseball people over the years. And, you know, obviously with Washington, with Mr. Griffith and Mickey Vernon and, and, and that uh, caliber of player. But the fact is, Cleveland was, I was six years old. So, my memories are rather limited. Oh, yeah. I do remember going to the ballpark, which was the you know, municipal stadium in Cleveland, which was huge. Right. Uh, it seated like 75,000 people for baseball. And, um, you know, much too big for baseball. That's why, you know, Griffith Stadium, a lot of the other smaller stadiums with 28 to 35,000 were, were fine because you could fill them up. But you get Municipal Stadium in Cleveland, you get 20,000 people in the stadium, and you're less than half full. Right, right, exactly. Now, you mentioned Mickey Vernon, which uh, he was a heck of a ball player. Was he, uh, and he was close, he was close to the family, you were saying? Yeah, very close. Mickey and my dad were extremely close, and then we became very friendly with the entire Vernon family. But Mickey, when I was a little boy, uh, he'd come over to our house, and uh, I always called him Uncle Mickey. Right. <laughs> that was, 
he'd put me on his lap and sing songs. And so, I mean, I, I knew Mickey Vernon uh, much more so as a family friend, obviously as a, as a great player, which I was able to, you know, ascertain later on. But during his playing career with my dad as his teammate, he, he was a member of our family. He was over a lot, and we talked and laughed and had a good time. Now, D Mickey was from the Philadelphia area, wasn't he? Or yeah, he was. Uh, Mickey, Mickey was born in Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. Right. And uh, it just so happens that Mickey and another gentleman you might uh, certainly be aware of, Danny Murtaugh, I've... the great manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, Mickey and Danny were boyhood friends. Right. So they started uh, playing baseball together probably when they were just teenagers and then, uh, you know, had, had major league careers. And as it turned out, in 1960, when the Pirates won the World Series, when they defeated the Yankees, uh, Mickey was Danny Murtaugh's first base coach. Right. And then the next year, uh, Mickey was a manager of the expansion senators. You know, I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you about Danny Murtaugh. That I, I knew he was friends with Mickey Vernon, and right. and was wondering uh, if he had a chance to uh, to meet him. Now, now Mickey had is is that museum still around? Didn't he have a museum in his hometown? Uh, yeah. I think it is still available. I think it is still open, but it's in. Uh, I think it's in Delaware, Delaware County. Delaware. I'm not sure of the town, but they've moved it a couple times. And where it originally had been a Mickey Vernon Museum, right? Uh, Jim has expanded it now, and it's it's pretty much a, a museum to all the great ball players, athletes, basketball, football, baseball. Players who were from Delaware County, which is just outside of Philadelphia. Right. Yeah, I've always wanted to go go uh, go see that. My wife's uh, family. My my wife was born in Philadelphia, and uh, she still has family down there. And I've always thought about, you know, going to to see that. Well, uh, you know, Bob, if you do go, I mean, you know, I would say I think it's. I'm not sure of the town, but it, it, you'd have to look it up. It, yeah. It'd be under. It would be under Delaware County okay. Sports Museum, okay. and, and Jim Bankowski is the director, and Jim and I put our DVD together, so we've worked okay. together uh, quite a bit, and if you ever do go, please mention that I recommended that you, you look up Jim, because oh, he's definitely. a very knowledgeable guy. Uh, he, and, he and Mickey Vernon were very good friends, so that's, I think, how I first met uh, Jim. When Mickey Vernon passed away, uh, Mickey's daughter, Gay, had asked me to, to speak at the memorial service, and Jim also spoke, uh, and that was at Widener University, so that's the first time we met. That was, I think, in 2009. Oh, okay. All right. Um... What was it like, you know, and I'm thinking that you have a father that was such a successful uh, Major League Baseball player, and, and the time that you grew up, I mean, baseball was was king of the sports, uh, I would say, during that time. Oh, what, absolutely. What were the, how did the, uh, how did the neighborhood kids, uh, what did they think about you having a father that was a, uh, well, a former they, player? Well, they, they all knew it. Yeah. And, and yet I think the fact is that I could play, 
um, was something that, you know, they weren't only, only going to say to me, well, how come you don't play ball like your father? Right. So I did play, and I was the same name and played in the same area. But when you're talking about neighborhood kids, I got one little funny story for you. Okay. Um, I was about in, I think, maybe ninth or tenth grade, and I had talked to uh, some kids, some friends of mine in school, and I said, oh, by the way, I said, Mickey Vernon's coming over tonight for dinner. Yeah. And I just said it offhand, and, you know, all of a sudden, so Mickey comes and with his wife, and, and we're having a nice dinner, and the, all of a sudden the doorbell rings, and here's a line of kids outside waiting for Mickey Vernon's autograph. So <laughs> it was funny because Mickey and my dad are laughing, and so my father said, okay, you, you did it. Now you have to go out there and just get one kid at a time coming in. And that's what they did. So, so that was, that was my neighborhood story about being the son of a, son of a ball player and a, and a friend of, and Mickey had just won the American League batting championship. And I think it was 1953. It was the second time. So the kids all certainly knew who he was and, for them to come over to Case's house and stand in line for an autograph, that was a big deal. Huh. Hey, what did you think of Mr. Griffin? Uh, what, what, this is the father, right? This isn't Cal Griffin, yeah. right? A lot of people, Bob, a lot of people confuse that yeah. because Clark Griffith was the longtime owner of the Washington Ball Club and started in, um, well, he was a player himself, but I think he and Connie Mack really got the American League off the ground in like 1901. Right. And the fact is that Mr. Griffith was a very kind, baseball was his sole source of income, so he didn't have deep pockets. So people would say, well, he was a cheapskate. Well, he really wasn't a cheapskate. He just didn't have any, any financial backing like somebody like Yawkey or Rupert or some Comiskey's, those people. Right. Uh, but the fact is that Mr. Griffith, the, the players loved him. He always treated them with, with kindness, and uh, he was just a terrific person. Now, Calvin Griffith right. was his adopted son, Okay. and Calvin Griffith was a different kind of person, but he was not a direct descendant of Clark Griffith. Clark Griffith adopted Calvin. His maiden name, I mean, his uh, family name was Robertson. They were from Canada. And he assumed and took over once he got, uh, once he was adopted, he took over the name Griffith and changed his name from Robertson to Griffith. His first name was Calvin. He is the person who moved the Washington Ball Club in uh, 1960 from Washington to Minnesota. Oh. And they became the Minnesota Twins. Oh, that was... And, uh, and my dad always said, and my dad worked for the Twins in one, in one year in 1968 as the third base coach, but my father told me many times, he said, George, he said, I don't think that Mr. If, if Mr. Griffith was alive, he would have never moved the ball club. He had such deep affection for the city of Washington. Well, they, they had a lot of good young kids uh, on the Washington Senators that moved up to Minnesota, right? I mean, it was Harley Kilbrew and... Uh, were developing, uh, you know, home run hitters. They had uh, uh, Harmon Killebrew and Bob Allison and Roy Seavers and, and um, you know, it just, uh, uh, just a really terrific club where for so many years Washington had no right-handed power at all. Right. And then all of a sudden they started to get some power 
and they became a very, uh, you know, contender. And all of a sudden, they pick up roots and, and leave. So the new ball club that came in, the expansion centers, which very limited in, in ability, but it was Major League Baseball, and Mickey Vernon had asked my dad and Sid Hudson to be coaches. So they were re reunited in Washington, and they were very happy, even though they knew it was going to be a long couple of years because they just didn't have the talent on the ball club uh, that they needed to compete in the American League. Now, Sid Hudson, that's another one of your father's former teammates, right? Absolutely. Sid is another very close personal friend. Uh, last time I saw Sid was uh, when they unveiled the Mickey Vernon statue. I think it was in 2005 in Marcus Hook, and Sid and his wife came up from Waco, Texas. Sid had been the uh, pitching coach at Baylor University for many years, but he was a, a terrific pitcher, uh, never pitched with a real contender, so he didn't have a great one-loss record, but... You know, when Mick, when uh, Ted Williams took over as the expansion senator's manager uh, in the 69, 70, that area, uh, he had uh, Sid Hudson as his pitching coach. And when the team moved to Texas, uh, Sid went, went with the club. So, you know, Sid was a terrific pitcher, big, tall guy, good fastball, um, had good control, but again, his one, if you ever look him up, his one loss record is not that great because he never was really playing for, for top notch ball clubs. Well, that, that happens. I, I think of one of, uh, one of my favorite pirate pitchers. Bob Friend was the same way. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. played with some awful teams and he almost won 200 right. games. Uh, well, yeah. that's the thing, Bob. Absolutely. I mean, some guys, you know, some guys will will benefit if they're really a great pitcher and that kind of thing. But a lot of guys, you know, struggle right. if they don't get a lot of run support. You know, it's tough when you're losing one nothing, two one, whatever it is. That means you know the ball club that you're pitching for isn't isn't helping you at, uh, at you know get runs. Yeah, you could throw a shutout and hope that you might win. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. So. Yeah. Hey, um, going back to um to Cal Griffin. Now he wasn't a real baseball fan like his father, right? I mean, well, he, he, well, he was, you know, certainly knowledgeable, but he was not, uh, you know. I mean, Clark Griffith grew up and and had the great teams, Washington in the 1924 World Series champions in 25 and 33. They were American League champions. They were, and Walter Johnson. And I was going to say the big thing. <laughs> those great players. Uh, Calvin was, you know, rooted in baseball because of, of Clark, but he certainly didn't have the affinity and love of the, of the players and fans like, like Clark Griffith had. Now the Griffins. Now was it was it Calvin or was it Clark that signed all the Cuban? They were big on signing Cuban players. I mean, they actually. Yeah, were it was it was Clark Griffith. Um, he had a super scout named Joe Cambria, and uh, Joe Cambria was known as Papa Joe to Cubans. Okay. Um, and matter of fact, uh, Joe Cambria also signed my dad, Mickey Vernon, Eddie Yost. Gil Cohn. So he signed a lot of American players, but he all but his reputation was really in Cuba. Right. And he was able to sign a lot of Cuban players and since Mr. Griffith had a limited amount of payroll, 
uh, he didn't have to pay a lot of money to get some of these guys, and they were some some really good players. And at that time, the Cuban ball players were, you know, some of them were 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 outstanding players, and some of them would be great players later on. But they had their first exposure, and a lot of times, my dad would tell me. The first time they came to the United States from Cuba, they didn't speak English. And, uh, you know, the way they talked to baseball, they all knew how to do where you position players and use hand signals and all that kind of stuff. But the English language, my dad said it many times, they just had to have somebody interpret uh, those, uh, you know, with the players as to what is being said because they just didn't have a command of the English language. Now, was this pre-Castro, or was it before and after? When it was pre-Castro. It was pre-Castro. You know, that was when, you know, actually Cuba, you know, during those years, I mean, Cuba was a hotbed of baseball, yeah. but there was no political problem like there were, you know, once Cuba, and they put the embargo on and Kennedy and all that kind of right. stuff, and that pretty much dried up uh, all the Cuban players uh, coming to the state. Some of them had to actually come on, you know, had to sneak out of the country on boats and that kind of stuff if they wanted to, to play baseball in the, in the United States. And then many of them just would play baseball in Cuba because Cuba, I mean, baseball is like the national sport of Cuba. Yeah. No, As a matter of fact, if you're talking about that, I don't know whether you heard the story or not, but at one time, uh, Joe Cambria actually scouted Fidel Castro. Oh, so Fidel I, Castro, I, <laughs> he was a, apparently at one time he was a pretty good ball player. And so I guess Mr. Griffith sent him down, not knowing anything about Castro's political ambitions, but right. just to scout him. And, and the story I got was that Cambria took a look at him and said, he'll never make the major league, so I wouldn't even worry about it. Right, right. Now, uh, they had a pretty good uh, Cuban pitcher. I, I can remember growing up watching uh, Camilla Pasquale, right? Yes. Outstanding. Yeah. He was a great curveball, probably probably one of the best curveball pitchers that's ever lived. He had terrific curveball. Uh, Sandy Consuegra was another one. Uh, Connie Marrero, who... Um, you might have seen pictures of Marrero. He died just a couple years ago, and they finally got him a pension. But he was a short, stocky guy, played baseball, pitched for a couple years for Washington, and, and did very well. Uh, so they had some outstanding Cuban players, uh, and Washington benefited. And then, you know, some of those great Cuban players wound up being signed, but going to Minnesota. So you had Rod Carew, Tony Oliva. I mean, these were these were Hall of Famers, and these were Cuban ball players. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that Tony Oliva finally got into the Hall of Fame. I mean, oh, I am I am too, Bob. I think it was long overdue. Oh yeah. Uh, Tony was there when my father was coaching. I remember him coming back from spring training and talking to me. He said, "Boy, we got some real real players." He said, "That Oliva and." And Carew, they're going to be two great ones. And, of course, Killebrew was already uh, established. But, you know, Killebrew was a power hitter, and then they, they lost his services, 68, only about half the year because he pulled his hamstring in an All-Star game, and, and he couldn't play. He but, did that playing uh, third uh, base, right? Didn't he do that when he was playing third or something, that game? Well, he did it. See, 
straight. He was playing first. Oh, he was playing first. Yeah, but he stretched for a throw, and he, he you know, he, he stretched his hamstring, and really was a very severe injury. And I think he only played like a hundred games that year out of 162 regular schedule. So, and the other guy, when you mentioned Oliva about the Hall of Fame, I mean, Tony Oliva was was a great hitter, but he had bad knees. Right, and that's so what it was. The last couple of years. You know, they made him a DH, which was terrific because he didn't have to go out in the field and try to run. But the fact is that he was a terrific player, and I was very happy that that he got into the Hall of Fame. And he was very appreciative. If you listened uh, to the speech he gave, I mean, uh, that that was a nice that was a nice acceptance. I mean, you know, generally, you know, people do a, a good job with it, but uh, I I thought Tony did a fantastic job with that. But, well, I, didn't, I did not hear his speech, but I just knowing of him and the fact that he was so highly thought of. But, you know, the, he just was one of those players, probably if he hadn't those physical limitations with his bad wheels, yeah. that he would have really been a, an outstanding. But some people, they you know, if you're a DH or whatever, you know, they don't feel that they're, they're fully qualified for the Hall of Fame. Well, I, I disagree. I think it, it, it depends on their position. I mean, uh, Big Pappy got in there and all right. that kind of stuff with the Red Sox. So I think with with Tony, he was, uh, if you talk to baseball people, they will just tell you uh, the greatness he had as a hitter. Yeah. Well, Big big uh, Poppy uh, played homage to uh, Tony at the, uh, at the Hall of Fame. You know, I guess uh, you know Tony was a big influence on uh, on uh, Ortiz. So, oh yeah, I, I think probably a lot of those guys, uh, Bob. They, you know, they took them under their wings, or they talked about you know what it is, and and actually, you know, in the early days, it was a lot harder for those Cubans to assimilate into the into the American culture. You know, it's a little right. bit different today, and of course the. The money today is just so crazy from right. what they used to make uh, to what they're making today yeah. that, uh, you know, they, I think when my dad was playing, uh, Bob, he used to laugh. He said, well, I was born many years too soon because <laughs> I'd probably be worth a lot of money if I was still playing today. Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'm a, as you, you probably uh, figured out, I'm a big Pirate fan, so Clemente was my hero, but... I mean, when I was growing up, it was Tony Oliva in the American League and Roberto Clemente in the National League. They were the two right. guys that that I uh, right. I really loved. And Vita Pinson, too. I'd lo- I, I, well, yeah, Bob, those three guys were at the top of their game. I mean, right. they were terrific. Yeah. And, and Roberto, I mean, I was an American League fan, but obviously I followed baseball, and you know, a guy like Clemente is one of the few what we would call five-tool players. Right. Uh, Willie Mays was one. I mean, they can run, hit, hit for average, throw, defense. I mean, they're just great players. And Clemente, you know, such a tragedy with how he passed away. Okay. But the fact is that he reached that one milestone, 3,000 hits. That, that was his last major league hit was, uh, you know, number 3,000. You know, I get a kick out of, you know, people that are uh, – they would be critical of uh, Roberto, like with his power and stuff. But if you think about it, he played the majority of his career at Forbes Field. Right. 
And Forbes Field wasn't the easiest place for a, a power hitter unless you were Ralph Kiner and they brought the, <laughs> brought the fences well, in. No, that, no question, Bob. That's true. I mean, you know, and you could say from many power. I mean, hey, if I was going to build an outfield, I'd certainly want Clemente in that outfield. Yeah. Because yeah. he could do he could do it all. He could give you a hit. He could he could had a you know as far as his running ability, his throwing ability, his cannon. He had a cannon for an arm. Oh man! And, uh, you know, I, I've seen some tapes of him throwing guys out. Uh, you know, just one hop to the catcher, and you know they they got the the guy coming in. So it got to a point, I'm sure. Where coaches would tell their players, "Hey, balls hit to Clemente, and you're you know on second base or whatever. You better just hold up at third because don't try and score because he's going to throw you out." That's that's for sure. You know, Mike. The the other questions I was going to ask you. You basically, uh, well, I mean, I have other other questions, but I'm looking at uh, at my list here, and I was going to ask you when you first swung. You know, the first time you ever swung a baseball bat, but I'm sure that was, like you said, you were, you know, you kind of, and, and what positions you played, and you told me you could play all of them. And, well, uh, you know what? It's funny about baseball bat, because I've got a picture at home of, um, it was taken inside our living room, and my dad is pretending he's a catcher, and I'm standing up at, at what supposedly is home plate, and I've got a bat in my hand with my hand split like like Ty Cobb used to do. Yeah. I had no idea probably what I was doing when yeah. I was maybe five years old. So that might have been the first time I swung a bat or had a bat in my hand. But later on, I could swing because I, you know, I played. But, you know, it was a good memory for me with baseball because, again, it came, it came natural to me. <clears throat> and the fact is that I was a, a lowball hitter. I... I I was playing Little League. I have a friend of mine, and he was pitching against me, and he threw me a low pitch, and I hit it up for a home run. And after the game, he said, and I would face him in high school, and he said, you'll never see another low pitch from me again. <laughs> <laughs> you you were a marked man there. with, with yeah, <laughs> so, Every time I come up to him, I have to laugh because he was always going to throw me high and inside because huh. he knew I wasn't going to handle it. But if he came down low, I, I could I could get one out. Well, I'll tell you, and, and it's funny that um, you know I was a halfway decent player. Also, I was a pitcher and stuff. I pitched through high school and a little afterwards, but it was always low and outside. I remember, uh, you know, the coaches were concentrating on so. Right. So you would have took you well, would have yeah. gone yard on me then. <laughs> well, no, but low and low and outside was fine, you know, because you're not going to pull. But if you're a pull hitter. And if you're strong and somebody, a pitcher makes a mistake and then he comes in low and low and maybe it, uh, you know, knee high or, or right. in your, in your strike zone, you know, you're going to hit one out. Right. But you can't, you can't always tell. And a pitcher will tell you the same thing. They're, they're trying to hit spots and right. they're going to make mistakes. And that's what a hitter is looking for. If you watch the ball games, you know, when you see these guys and today, it's a little bit different. Because when my dad was playing, what I was taught, you have two strikes, you shorten your swing, you just try and keep the ball in play. Well, the guys today, because they're making so much money, they get two strikes, they're still trying to hit one out. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's once again, I'm a Pirate fan, and this guy, O'Neill Cruz, I don't know if you know about O'Neill Cruz, he's that shortstop that's six foot seven. Yeah, I, uh, right. Well, I mean, I was... 
Well, I interviewed, I don't know if you know uh, Ike Futch, but he had a record in uh, in the minor leagues where he only struck out like four times in, I don't know, close to 500 times. But, but I was saying, you know, I was looking at O'Neill Cruz, uh, you know, when I interviewed him, I was looking at his stats, and he was up 300 times, and he already had struck out 102. I'm like, what? What is that? Bob, that doesn't surprise me. It's like yeah. I say, you know, I, I'm, watching, I'm not a fan of baseball today the way yeah. I used to be, but right. it just bothers me when I see these guys that are still trying to hit one out with two strikes. Right. And, you know, and, and the strikeouts are, you know, they're, they're outrageous. I mean, guys are striking out a couple hundred times a, a season, and you're, like you're saying, they might be up four or five hundred at bats, and, and a third of that is strikeouts. Right. I mean... It's like he he was batting three hundred in strikeouts, yeah. I mean, you know, right. yeah. I it's well, who, who was it? I think it was some other what player, but but maybe that was the one you're talking about. And he, he said, well, you know, I only struck out, you know, whatever the number is. And I think Mickey was Mickey Mantle said, well, hell, I could oh. I could maybe do that in one game. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, that was I. I <laughs> okay, right. And and you know what? I I could um. I could hear Mickey Mantle's voice saying that, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a, a guy like Mantle could certainly get away with it. But on the other hand, if you ever followed baseball, you could you could see that Mickey Mantle, for all his power and all his greatness, he was one of the best drag bunners I've ever seen in baseball. That's what I heard. I could really, left-handed, he was, he was just amazing because he had such mm-hmm. great speed, but he knew how to bunt. And that's another lost art today. Very few guys know how to bunt. Oh, remember there was a guy that played for the Mets, I don't know, oh, geez, seven, eight years ago. And, oh, uh, Dom- oh Dominican something or, but anyway, he, he got sent up, he got sent up the bunt and he did such a horrible job and they went to their, the, I guess afterwards, uh, in the press conference to the, the manager, like sort of, they brought that up and he goes, well, he doesn't really know how to bunt. And I'm like, you're a major league ball player. That's right. It ain't his fault he doesn't know how to bunt. And I'll tell you why, in my opinion, why they don't know how to bunt. It used to be that ball players would play pepper. Yes. They would play it all the time. And that taught bat control, how to bunt, all that kind of stuff. Today, they don't even play pepper anymore. Yeah. And I think it, it has a detriment because of the fact that so many guys, they really don't know how to butt. I see them get up there, they square around, they dip their bat, they pop it up or they miss the ball completely. Right. Instead of letting the ball hit the bat, they're, they're, they're diving at the ball with the bat and it just, that's not the way you butt. Well, what about another, another game like you're saying about playing, uh, playing that? What about playing pickle? Remember when, when we were kids? I mean, when, when I was a kid, I mean, we used to play pickle constantly if we didn't have enough to put, you know, put up two sides of a, for a game. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we all called it probably different things, but we used to yeah. call it, I think where I played, we used to call it workies up and we'd do all kinds of stuff because if you only had, you might only have five or six guys. Right. Uh, and you, you know, you needed nine, you weren't going to get them. So you'd say, okay, right field out or they oh, do yeah. something. And, you know, that was the way you played, but it was, you're learning the skill, you're learning, you're playing, and, and where to throw the ball, and where to, how to hit, and, and what the game is, 
young kids, you start playing at a very early age. And, and again, my opinion, there's very, very few, because of the, you know, the way sports are today, there's very few white kids playing baseball. You see mostly Dominicans or you see Caribbean, you know, players in the Caribbean or, or from Korea or, or right. Japan, whatever it is. And most of the white guys in this country, you know, they're playing football or they're, they're, you know, another athlete and another sport, soccer, whatever it is. Right. And baseball has lost that, that appeal to young, to young kids, even though the money <clears throat> to me is just absolutely crazy. Oh, I mean, guys are signing 10 year contracts for $30 million a year and that kind of stuff. So, oh my God. You know, they're paying him. They're going to be paying him. I think Bobby Benilla with the men yeah. is still being paid a million dollars a year, and he's been retired. That's right. Sort of like a holiday. <laughs> they, there's a Bobby <laughs> Benilla Day, I know, in New York, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Now, um, when, my dad was playing, when my dad was playing and Mickey Vernon and, and Sid Hudson, all, they all had jobs in the off season. They had to. Right. And uh, Mickey, Mickey used to laugh because he said, George, one, one year for an off-season job, I was at department store Santa Claus. <laughs> so. yeah. Hey, what was it like? I, I read somewhere that um, when your dad was coaching for Washington, you got a chance to wear, uh, I guess, the uh, senator's uniform and work out with him? Right, I did. And that was, uh, that was a real thrill for me. I was, uh, I think I was a sophomore in college at Rutgers and I went down, I think it was like opening day and my dad said, he said, well, Mickey and Mickey said it was okay with him, you know, so take a uniform, put it on, go out and take infield and go out and take batting practice. And so I did. Wow. And uh, an interesting story was that after I worked out and uh, opening day in Washington, it was always the president of the United States. So John Kennedy was president, and I'm sitting in the dugout after I had showered and I got my street clothes on, and I'm just sitting there. I'm enjoying myself, and the presidential box is right next to the Washington dugout. All of a sudden, I'm surrounded by about five Secret Service agents. And they said, what the hell are you sitting there for? I said, well, my dad's a coach. They said, well, where's your father? So I had to actually show the Secret Service agent where my dad was lined up on the first baseline. <laughs> and they had to come in and get him. <laughs> and he had to identify me. If he hadn't, I had probably wound up being in jail. Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> so that was my opening day experience in baseball. When I was working out, I mean, it was it was great. But then afterwards, you know, I'm now I'm hmm. now a fan who's sitting in the presidential next to the president of the United States, and I'm sure all the Secret Service planning and all that they didn't expect to see somebody sitting in the dugout next to the president. Wow! Now your your dad coached you coached you um, at Rutgers, didn't? Did he coach you yeah, he the did. year before that, or he did? Uh, I went to Rutgers uh, to play. Uh, baseball and basketball right and i only school i really wanted to go to because my dad had been the baseball coach at rutgers for 10 years okay and uh, so i played for him my sophomore year and then he went back into in the major leagues and i know you mentioned the other day that you had uh, 
I've been, I guess, at a baseball dinner or something with, oh. with Jeff Torberg and a couple other people. Right. And uh, maybe it was Al Downey. Al Downey, Jeff yes. And I, yeah, Jeff and I were, were fraternity brothers at Rutgers, very oh. good friends. And, okay. and Jeff was a freshman when my dad was, uh, was coaching. And then when my father left, uh, you know, Jeff told me, he says, boy, the only time I, only reason I went to Rutgers was because I wanted to play baseball for your father. Uh, and, uh, so he never did, but, but Jeff and I, we joined the same fraternity and we've been, we've been very good friends, just like with Al Downing for, you know, the time we were 18, 19 years old. Wow. I'll tell you, Al Downing is one of the nicest people I've ever met. I mean, I always, you know, I, I was I was kidding him, but, you know, because I was 10 years old at that banquet, and I won the door prize, and it was an autographed ball. Well, you, you know, the story and stuff. So when I talked to Al, I was like, oh, yeah, he says, uh, you know, we've met before. And he's like, we did? He says, yeah. He says, you don't remember? <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> and then I told him, and he was like, well, no, no, I don't remember. I, I remember that banquet, I think. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, he well, was... Al, Al was, you know, Bob, as, as you just said, I mean, Al was a terrific, is, is a terrific guy. And, yeah. and Al and I first met, we played high school basketball and baseball against one another. Al okay. was the year behind me. He went to Trenton High, who was a great basketball player and mm -hmm. an outstanding baseball pitcher. But I had uh, known Al... Uh, from that point on, and every time we see each other, he says, boy, he says, I, we've had so many good memories, George. And, yeah. and Al is the kind of person, he always gets back to Trenton yeah. to be with his friends. Yeah. He's a real family person, but he's got so many ball player and, and personal friends in the Trenton area. That, and Al lives in California, so oh, you know, yeah. he comes back you know, a couple times a year just to you know, touch base with all his old buddies. Well, you know, we we've been talking uh, often after after the podcast. Uh, we've you know I've called him up and you know we've talked like when the World Series was going on. I mean, he's great to talk baseball with. But I want you to know that he when I told him I says I was going to talk with you, he says to tell you hello. You know? Well, thank you. That's very nice. I mean, that's the kind of person Al is. And, yeah. You know, he just is a very very articulate. Uh, and I listened to some of the podcasts. I mean, Al's yeah. got a, an interest in history in the Trenton area, and, and is very knowledgeable. And of course, his his baseball knowledge is is outstanding. Oh, sure. And they, when you talk to Al, I mean, as a as a pitcher, you can get a little bit of an inside uh, look as to what it takes to actually be a major league pitcher and what you're learning to do. And it's more than just trying to rear back and throw strikes and strike out people because it's a lot more to it than that. I'll tell you, I wish I had these the, the conversations I had with him. I wish I had uh, with him when I was in high school. I might have been all state. Cause, cause well, sure. <laughs> I, I, I don't doubt it. I, I think, to tell you the truth, I think the first time I ever faced Al was we were playing Little League. I think I was in maybe I was 11 or 12. And, uh, you know, I, I get up and, and I think I w took like three fastballs and sat down. I said, that's, that's enough, that's enough for me. But yet then we played, you know, high school basketball and baseball and we became, you know, very friendly. And, and Al's just a, is just an all around nice, nice person. Very, very smart. 
but very articulate. You'll have a nice conversation with him at any time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And another guy from Trenton that I really enjoyed talking with was the, uh, the former umpire, Al Clark, who yeah. your paths crossed with him also, right? Well, it did. And, and, and I don't know whether when you talk to Al, you know, Al's got a, a book out. It's called, uh, uh, and called out, but safe. Yeah, I just read it. In fact, his, yeah, it was written about his major league umpiring career. But, but Al, I mean, you know, I first met Al when Al's father, and I don't know whether you even knew this, Bob. Al's yeah. father was a sports writer oh, in yeah. Trenton. Oh yeah, and that's how Al Al first you know was exposed to baseball uh, because his dad used to cover you know, local ball games and, and that kind of thing. And I think his father was covering the Trenton Giants in 1950 when, when Willie Mays was playing in Trenton. Right, right. Well, you know, it was funny. This all started like, you know, I had interviewed uh, Al Clark first. And you know how on the uh, the American League umpires, they used to have numbers on their uniform? And he was he wore, tw you know, he had number 24. So I'm thinking... Oh, let me put one and one together. I says, yeah, he's from Trenton. Oh, did you wear that because of Willie Mays? He goes, well, no. He says, actually, uh, my favorite player growing up was Al Downing, and he wore 24. And and it's just, it's it's funny that the, the three of you guys have, you know, such a network and stuff. I mean, each each one of you have talked about the other one. It's uh, it's pretty neat, and you guys, you know. You, you hit the nail on top of the head there with uh, with being a big baseball town. I mean, they used to have. Um, I'm I'm thinking when my oldest son was playing, they used to have a big tournament down in Trenton for like you know like Babe Ruth uh, level kids, like 14 years old or right. you know. Well, yeah, well, they, you know, Bob, they did. Trenton, Trenton always had terrific uh, teams and reputation. As a matter of fact, in, in '48. Uh, the Trenton Shros won the National American Legion title. And then when Al Downing was pitching for the Trenton Bay Ruth League All-Stars in 56, they won the national title out in Portland, Oregon. And then a few years later, uh, Ewing Township, which was a suburb of, of Trenton, uh, they won the Bay Ruth League World Series. And right across the river in, in Morrisville, where I grew up, uh, 55, the... Marshall Little League won the national championships in Little League. So, I mean, it's a very, very strong area baseball-wise and a lot of tournaments. And there's there's a field in Trenton that's no longer, unfortunately, it's no longer used for baseball, but uh, it was called Wetzel Field. Uh, my dad played there. 
But in 1927, believe it or not, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig on their barnstorming oh. tour played in Trenton. And, and Ruth hit like three home runs uh, at Wetzel Field. And uh, they had to stop the game because the kids are all running around after him trying to emulate him running around the bases. And they were afraid somebody's going to fall under his spikes and get hurt. So they had to stop the game. <laughs> That's a neat story. Yeah, I know. I've 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 read about the two of them. Uh, what was it that that picture? Uh, I think I even saw it on Facebook. Uh, Larry uh, Lou. They, they, yeah, they had they had uh, the Boston Babes and Busty. the Larrapin Lou's, yeah. and that was what they had on their uniforms. Right. And uh, a lot of people don't realize, but it was the, that barnstorming tour in '27 was after they won the World Series and had that great team. Oh, yeah. So they went out on their own. A guy named Christy Walsh was their agent, and he managed the tour. Well, then, you know, after the tour, they were told, hey, guys, you know, no more. No more barnstorming after that. Uh, Commissioner of Baseball, uh, Judge Landis, ruled against it. it. Didn't do anything except that they forbid that kind of stuff to happen anymore until I think it was Bob Feller and Satchel Page and Dizzy Dean. I think this was back in the late 40s. Uh, had a barnstorming tour, but, yeah. uh, you know, baseball back then, as you know, Bob, was, uh, that was king of the hill. I mean, oh, everybody yeah. followed baseball. It was the national pastime. I don't think it is anymore, but back then it certainly was. Yeah. Well, you talk about Christy Walsh and stuff. I don't know if you got a chance to read, uh, oh, uh, Janet Levy wrote her book, The Big Fellow, was uh, talked about you know, the barnstorming and all these other promotions that, uh, right. you know, it made, I mean, the Babe, I guess, didn't make, uh, I mean, well, he made a lot of money for for players of that time, but they didn't tap the, uh, you know, the source there of, you know, all these, uh, you know, the barnstorming and appearances and, you know. Well, yeah, a lot of the guys did, Bob. They, they did. They, they did that for extra, extra yeah. money. And, uh, you know, the one the one thing I also want to mention about Christy Walsh, and, and this came, somebody made me aware of this probably a year ago, maybe two years ago, but in 1939, and I have it right now, I'm looking at it right now, it's on my wall, uh, my dad, Ozzy Bluegy, and Benny Bengal were instructors at the Academy of Sport in the 1939 World's Fair, and Christy Walsh is standing right behind my dad. I did for many years, I did not know who that person was until somebody pointed it out to me that yeah. that was Christy Walsh. And then I put two together, two and two together. Say, yeah, Christy Walsh, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Christy Walsh. That, that's yeah. where I heard the name. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like the the Three Musketeers, I guess. They were as tight yeah, as that, well, right? Well, he was uh, like, he was a, he had been a, a sports writer. I think he, he ghosted some stories yep. and that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, the fact is that he was a, uh, you know, had, had taken upon himself to really become friends with Garrick and Ruth. And, you know, if you're going to take uh, two ball players and take them at their peak, you know, they were the two guys to have. And, and Lou Garrick, I've got a picture now I'm looking at. You know, my dad was on the field when Garrick, you know, gave his luckiest man speech. And right. My father caught the last ball that Lou Garrick hit in his major league career. And my dad went uh, pheasant hunting one year with Babe Ruth in 42 or 43. So, you know, I feel a, a strong 
you know, kinship to all these guys, and that's why I like to keep the memorabilia and the photographs oh, yeah. because, you know, that's a lot of personal memories for me. Oh, sure. And that's, you know, that's definitely baseball history. I mean, you don't get more history than talking about right. Babe Ruth and right. Lou Gehrig and that, that whole yeah. era and stuff like that. Absolutely. You know. They were, they were the two. And actually, Bob, you know, the Babe Ruth had retired, I think, in 36. My dad broke in in 37. So my father never played against Ruth. But my dad in 38 and 39 did, did play and knew. Lou Gehrig, and mm -hmm. so, you know, people talk to me about Lou Gehrig, I said, well, you know, I've also, when I was a Sabre member, we, we tried to raise some money for ALS because it, yeah. you know, here at Lou Gehrig, this was 1939 when he was diagnosed, and here it is, you know, 2022, and they still don't have a cure for ALS. Yeah, no, that's true. You know who wrote it? Well, uh, oh, I'm looking at the book. The guy who wrote the uh, the luckiest man uh, was yeah, Jonathan. Ike. Yeah, I mean, uh, he taught. You know what was great about that book is he actually and and I don't believe in any other book they uh, talked about the ALS with uh, you know so much you know and right. you know they it's uh, you know that was a horrible thing to happen. You know, to such a a wonder. It seemed he seemed like a wonderful person, and and he was definitely well, a wonderful ball player. Absolutely, he was a, a, the players loved Lou Gehrig. Yeah, and the fact is that Lou Gehrig had such great skill, but he was just a down to earth person, yeah. very quiet, very modest, as opposed to you know Babe Ruth been his you know his ebullience and just wanted to be around and having a good time. Right. Lou Gehrig was very quiet, very reserved, and, you know, the fact is that my father told me specifically, one of the first stories I ever heard about baseball was that how much the players loved Lou Gehrig, but that they, when it happened, they had no idea why his skills had deteriorated almost overnight, right. and here it was, it was the, you know, ALS taking control of his body. And I don't think the players, the fans, or anybody really knew anything about ALS at the time and how serious and, and how, you know, life-threatening. I mean, two years after Lou gave his luckiest man speech, he was dead. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and you know, the other thing, think about Lou Gehrig, who, I mean, he is definitely in the top five of all time and probably higher than that. But he was he was just as happy to be in the shadow of Babe Ruth, and then at the end of his career, he was kind of in the shadow of Joe DiMaggio. Right. Yeah. I, I think you're you're right about that, Bob. It's just you know probably the ironies, but you know the fact is that the Yankees had those great players. Oh yeah. But you know Lou Gehrig was not you know he just was not seeking the limelight. It's just not it was not his nature. Yeah. Uh, Babe Ruth did. Joe DiMaggio was, you know, a great player. Uh, but Joe, you know, he liked the limelight. Right. And my dad and Joe were quite friendly. And, and old-timers games, I was told that, you know, Joe DiMaggio, when he was going to appear, always wanted to be the last player introduced as the greatest living ball player. Yeah. So yeah, I that heard was, that you know... Yeah, but Joe, you know, Joe had a great ego, but he was, on the other hand, it was a different kind of person, certainly, than, 
than Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig, I think, shunned the spotlight where Joe DiMaggio, you know, he would bask in it. If, right. if somebody wanted to really talk about baseball history, you know, the, Ruth, Gehrig, and DiMaggio, they're certainly right up there at the very top. Oh, yeah. You know what? Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about before, just hear about, uh, and I mean, every little boy's dream would to be to have a father that, that owned a sporting goods store. And your dad had a sporting goods store, right? He sure did. Yeah, my dad, the year he retired, he, he opened up his store in Trenton. And he had it until 1960 when he went back into baseball as a coach with the expansion centers. But I used to work in my dad's store in part-time during Christmas vacations or summer and that kind of stuff. And, and I really learned an awful lot about the sporting goods business. So when I was, uh, after I graduated from Rutgers, you know, looking for my first job, I just happened to get a job that lasted my rest of my business career in the athletic footwear and sporting goods business because I grew up in it, just like in baseball. I mean, I knew baseball. I knew the sporting goods business. I knew the athletic footwear business. So it was a really a natural for me, and I feel very fortunate that I was able to have a business career that was tied into sports, you know, my entire life. Well, things happen for a reason, right? I mean, you know, they definitely, uh, things work out. Well, they do, and, and I, I can recall when I first interviewed, when I was back in 63, and I talked about the sporting goods business athletic footwear, and, and the people I was interviewing said, boy, what a, what a wonderful background you have. I said, well, it is, and I said, I think I could uh, make a real career out of this. as well, our company is not quite ready for you yet, but we're going to hire you, and you'll have to work your way up the ladder. I said, that's fine with me. I said, I'm just telling you that I understand the business because I grew up in baseball and I grew up in the sporting goods business. Right, right, exactly. You know, I also read about, and and this is not to do with the uh, the sporting goods business, but um, how about, and and it's one of my favorite places to go to, Cooperstown. What, uh, what can you tell us about that, that trip you took when um, uh, Bucky Harris had his Hall of Fame induction? What did your father play well, yeah, play for him? Yeah, or? That, that was and Bob. That was my first trip to Coop. I've been to Cooperstown a couple times right. since, but right. that was my first trip. And uh, Bucky Harris, my dad loved Bucky, and and Bucky's son was named Stanley Harris, and he was a judge. And Stanley just died about two years ago, but okay. he had personally invited my dad up to the induction. And my father said to me, he said, Georgie, how would you like to come up to Cooperstown with me? I said, Pop, I'd love to. Yeah. And so that's what we did. We were the guests of the Harris family, and and they have a big luncheon uh, put on by Major League Baseball uh, during the induction weekend. And uh, I happened to sit at the table for a buffet luncheon that they have. And next to me is Bill Dickey. Wow. And uh, next to Bill Dickey is my dad, and they were telling war stories, and they were good <laughs> friends. And, and I mean, I'm just soaking it in. I mean, here I am. I'm, you know, I was this was '75, so I was you know 35 years old. Right. But the fact is that you know, to me, Bill Dickey was legendary, you know, great catcher. But to hear the stories of my dad and, and Bill reminiscing, they hadn't seen each other in quite a while, but they just uh, really enjoyed that and as a 
interested spectator, I couldn't get enough. I just keep listening and, <laughs> and uh, really enjoyed the, the lunch. Oh, I bet. I mean, I know I would have loved it. That would have been... Oh, yeah. Well, it was a thrill. And that was my dad's, I mean, my first time in Cooperstown. I've been up there a couple yeah. times since. I had to speak once and, and had a backstage tour of of the Hall of Fame with the president of the Hall of Fame at the time. And I was, I was amazed because, believe it or not, I, I, they gave me, they showed me my dad's file. I mean, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but they have nice. records of all the major league ball players and stuff over the years. So I said to him, I said, this was the uh, librarian. I said, I just want to see how good you guys are. I said, my dad's half brother, uh, Cliff Case, signed a minor league contract in 1918, I'm wondering if you had the case. I said, oh, sure, we'll take a look at it. They go to their file, and they hand it me back, and they said, now, here's this contract. I said, you guys are amazing. Yeah. I said, here, here you've, got, you've got information on people that, you know, obviously no one else would know, but I just happened, because it was family, I just was happened to be very interested in seeing it, and they had it. Did they have, was, when you went there, did they have the rolling files? You know the big file uh, file cases, and they. I know. They, yeah, they did. All you know, they would take you down there, and they'd show you all this stuff. And, and of course, with the Hall of Fame, Bob, as you probably yeah. know, yeah, they have stuff that you know they only rotated. I don't know every so often, right? But there's more stuff that's not seen than is seen at the Hall of Fame. Now, obviously, you got all the Hall of Fame plaques where everybody sees that, but right. as far as records, photos. I mean, I was happy to see a photo they had, and I don't know whether it's still there, but it was the Ted Williams shift in 1946. Oh. They have a photo identifying all the players. Well, that photo, the reason for the Williams shift in 46, Lou Pedreau put it on because he had my dad in left field with my dad's speed. Everybody else was shifted over to the right side because yeah. Williams was such a pull hitter. Right. So. Boudreaux said, you know, well, if he tries to cross us up and hits one to left field, I got a left fielder who can at least go after the ball. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, you just you just uh, did a nice segue. I was going to ask you about what do you think about all the uh, the rule changes? I don't know if you've read read about I, them. I, I, you know, Bob, some of them I hate. I yeah. hate yeah. Uh, that. I think they they've disallowed it now, but when they first came up with that, I don't know what they call it, ghost runner or something oh, on yeah. second base, I, I said, I said, this is the most worst thing. I, I can't imagine that being a former ball player myself. And if you played, Hey, if the game is tied or whatever it is, you know, you have to earn your way on base. You don't just get a gift and say, yeah, put them on second. Cause we want to end the, end the game. We don't want to go extra innings. Well, I hate it. I hate that. I'm glad they've, I guess, disallowed it for the future because I just think that that's just a horrible rule in baseball. The other thing that I don't like, and I know a lot of people do, but I, you know, now they've changed it, but I did not like the fact that the National League had no DH, the American League had a DH, so you got the top levels of baseball, you got two different rules. Right. And when you have a DH, it's a totally different strategy. Now, They've got a DH for both leagues, so, you know, that's, I think they've addressed that problem. Right, right. Now, what is, you know, 
every so often I read more of the rules and stuff, but um, throwing over to first base, have you heard about that rule, that rule that they're only allowed to do it two times? If not, they're going to count it as a balk if you, you throw no, it first. Something that's like one that, that's a new one on me, Bob. I, I did not know that one. No, yeah, you have not. to check that out. I'll I'll check it out also. But uh, right. yeah, let's talk about throwing and and then what about the bags being bigger? You know, well, that part of it. I do, it's another thing I don't like because to me that changes the the baseline. You know, you're going yeah. from ninety feet. Now you're going to have a larger bag, and and why you're going to do it, I have no idea. Yeah. You know, they're saying, well, it'll it'll prevent. You know, collisions or I don't I don't know what it does, but I don't like that. I don't like pitch counts. I've seen you know I understand with the guys that are throwing hard the way they are, but it used to be that pitchers, starting pitchers, you know they're paid to start and finish ball games. Right. Now you got pitchers, you know they're being paid huge amounts of money. They pitch five or six innings, called a quality start. And that's it. Then they turn it over to the bullpen, and it, and many times the bullpen blows the game. I mean, I forget who it was uh, sometime this year. The guy's pitching no hitter, and they take him out for you know he reached his limit of pitch counts. They take him out. He's pitched a no hitter. Right. Um, I, I can see I can see guys like like Bob Gibson. I, mean, uh-huh. I used to laugh. I mean. It, I heard the story about Tim McCarver, you know, he calls timeout and yeah. comes out to talk to Gibson. Gibson said, what are you coming out here for? You don't know anything about it. Pitching, you can't even hit. So, <laughs> yeah, that's good. And, then, like that. and then one time, I think it was Bob Euchre, with, when he was catching, you know, talking about knuckleball pitchers, and, and Euchre said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good at handling knuckleballs. After the ball stops rolling, I just go back and pick it up. <laughs> I know. So, I'll tell you. And and that's the thing with baseball. I mean, baseball has so many ingredients to it. I mean, it has history. It has these great stories. It has humor. I mean, that's why we, we love this sport, you know, that it has all that. And, and, and it seems like that not, let me, let me hear your, your response. So I think that they spend a lot of time trying to get new fans you know, by by making these changes, but at the right. same time, then they lose the old fans. Yeah, I agree. Yeah? I agree. I mean, I'm. I'm I, I think you know. I think baseball has struggled, and they're trying to you know reach the millennials and doing all this yeah. stuff with young fans. But they are definitely going to lose older fans. I know. You know, and hey, I, I'm I'm an example. I'm just one of millions, yeah. but where you used to follow baseball or you love the game, whatever. And I barely can watch a ball game today, Bob, because I just don't like it. And I understand they're trying to bring on new fans and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, they they have an all-star game now that to me is nothing more than an exhibition. Where before an all-star game was the American League versus the National League, which league is better? That's right. Now I see it. They're, they're having an all-star game. They got the players mic'd up. They're talking to the press box and they're doing all this kind of stuff. I said, Jesus, Christmas, yeah. just play the game. Let the guys go. They, they're interviewing guys, managers in the dugout with headsets on. The game's going on. I said, that's, I, that appeals, I guess, to the young people, but it, it doesn't appeal to the older fan at all. 
I don't even know if it appeals to the younger. I don't know if they're doing such a good job uh, winning that that uh, the millennials. <laughs> they, they might not be. It could be that it's too far gone. I mean, the, the young kids are so enamored with football and, and basketball and soccer now. I mean, you know, baseball had been the pre preeminent sport, and I yeah. think it's either second or third. No longer, no longer, in my opinion, is the national pastime. And uh, the older fans that are there, I think they become alienated or they die and they just don't have the interest. And the young kids, I, I went to a World Series game, the yeah. Phillies game, last week. Right. And there's two young kids standing, sitting in front of me. They stood the whole time. And I'm trying to watch the game. And yeah. these kids are screaming and hollering. I felt like saying, I didn't say it, but I felt like saying, hey, if you guys want to get standing room only, go buy another ticket. Because we're trying to watch the ball game. Which you know? game? I know you went to it. Which game did you go to? I went to the seven home run or five oh. home run Phillies win. Yeah, that was it. Win, and the next day they get no hits. So, right. uh, you know. Yeah. I hadn't been to a World Series game, and my, my son said, Dad, I said, I got some tickets. And I said, well, sure, if you want to have company, I'd love to go. Yeah. But I hadn't been to a World Series game. first one I saw was in 1950. I was 10 years old and went to see the Phillies against the, the Phillies Whiskers against oh, the, the Yankees. And, and my dad took me down and, and he knew a lot of the players on both teams. And it was a thrill for me to be a 10 year old, you know, watching the World Series at Shy Park. Yeah. Oh, Shy Park. See, I, the first game I ever went to was Connie Mack Stadium, but that's the old Shy right. Park, right? Connie Mack Stadium. Well, yeah, they renamed it. Yeah. You know, it had been called Shy Park, and then in, in honor of uh, Connie Mack, they renamed it Connie Mack Stadium. But a lot of people, you know, they, they think about the Phillies and, and they think about Connie Mack Stadium. I said, well, it's the same stadium, yep. but it was originally named Shy Park. It was 21st and Lehigh. That's where it was in that's, North Philadelphia. That's right. Exactly. Um, well, George, I'm going to wrap it up, but I want to ask you, uh, uh, what are you doing with yourself? And if you got anything going, you want to give a little plug? Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know what? I, I do. I mentioned that, uh, you know, my dad and Mickey Vernon, when they were playing, they, they took eight millimeter color home movies of World War II era baseball. Okay. And, and I market that. And uh, it's about 60 minutes long. It's called uh, Major League Baseball from JFK to, I mean, from FDR to JFK, and the golden era of baseball. And um, I have a website, www.timelessbaseball.com. It's all about World War II era baseball. So, you know, that's my thing. I, I, I'm retired, but this is a passion and a hobby that I have with baseball. And a lot of people have asked me to speak over the years because I do have some knowledge of the game and, and the personalities and the people that played. And, and I, I enjoy it very much. So that's, that's my, uh, that's my thing. Uh, I'm 82 years old. I'm retired, uh, probably the last 20 years, but I still am involved in, in baseball history and, and enjoy it and talking to people like yourself it's it's a lot of fun for me all right excellent george well george i want to thank you uh this was wonderful talking baseball with you i i just i, I just love talking baseball with people that know more than me 
So, <laughs> Bob, I'm not, I'm not sure I know more than you, but I, I know we share the same kind of yes. love of, of the game. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, you have a wonderful evening, and I am so glad we finally connected, and we'll have to talk again. Good. My pleasure. All Thanks right, again, Bob. All right. Thank uh, you. Bye-bye Bye. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, was meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From The Tree, in his honor. If you have any questions about today's program, you can contact us via email at rvhurte at gmail.com. And if you're interested in our new book, Intelligent Influence in Baseball, you can also send us an email and we will let you know how you can order it. In the immortal words of the famous baseball journalist, Red Smith, baseball is a dull game only for those with dull minds. <laughs>